Hey guys, this is Will. This is episode 93 of Conversations About Dot Dot Dot. I am interviewing Terry Moore, who's an Eisner Award winning cartoonist. Uh, he's created such series as Strangers in Paradise, Rachel Rising. Uh, he has created a studio called Abstract Studios, where a lot of his works and things are. In the uh, actual notes for the show, you'll see where you can go to get. Uh, stuff on his website. You can go check him out on social media if you want to follow him and learn some tips about writing and things like that. You also can check out his YouTube channel where he even talks about stuff like inking and different things like that. So he he covers a wide gambit of things. Whether you're an artist or a writer, this is a podcast that I think you'll enjoy. This is an episode I think you'll really enjoy. So do me a favor. I hope that it, this week with an election that we still don't know the final results to uh, that you're keeping your mind you're keeping your mind in a good place you're keeping your heart in a good place and you're still going out there and trying to figure out ways to you know be blessed and be a blessing to somebody out there even if we're not getting out as much as we usually do so I hope there's some encouragement in here for you I hope there's something that'll uplift your spirits as we continue to kind of see how this all is going to play out so Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate your support. We're climbing closer to episode 100. So I greatly appreciate you all getting involved in that. So anyway, thank you so much. And as always, continue to be blessed to be a blessing to somebody. And you're about to walk into the 93rd episode of Conversations About Dot Dot Dot. Hope you enjoy. Hey guys, before we get this started, I just want to tell you about an exciting new tool that has helped and is also a sponsor of the podcast, Poddex. Poddex are a deck of cards you can use to get everything from ideas to podcast topics to ideas for would you rather questions and other exciting podcast stuff. All the decks of cards you can use to help grow your podcast and more importantly come up with ideas when you're running dry out ideas. So what you want to do, it's, and that's also a great way to support the show by the way, Go to www.poddex.com, use the promotional code, join the conversation, and get 5% off of your order. So that's www.poddex.com, join the conversation for the promotional code for 5% off of your order. You will not regret it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another fun-packed, fun-filled, very intricate, interesting episode of conversations about dot 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 my name is will and i get to do another solo episode and i have the honor today of interviewing somebody that when i look at their line work and their artwork and not only their artwork but their stories i'm inspired by it because as a creator myself you know these stories are just to have a story that makes you feel something it's very vital uh i was in an interview with somebody else earlier and i was talking with them about the idea of writers are awesome and that they can give us those stories that really punch us in the stomach and make us feel. And this is one of those people that I, I consider somebody who, no matter what the story is, no matter what the situation is, he can always make me feel something when I'm reading his work. This is uh, Terry Moore. And Mr. Moore, say hi to everybody here at the, at the uh, listening to conversations about dot, dot, dot. Well, hello, and uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, so Terry, as always, we like to start off with an origin story. You know, not everybody is uh, born in a world and ends up having to fight in a video game world against their seven evil exes like Scott Pilgrim. Uh, and, you know, not everybody has to go through as much of a backstory as Francine. 
but that said, uh, we all have an origin story. And so I like to get people right off the bat, you know, let them talk about where they grew up, things they enjoyed as a kid, cartoons maybe they enjoyed, comic books, different geeky things like that. And then kind of walk us through from here to how you became somebody who has now written a vast volume of comic book stories, whether it's Strangers in Paradise, Rachel Rising, you know, and other different things like that. Gosh, man, that that's a that's a big biography to to write. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, the quick version, the uh, short story version, I guess, is that I was um, I, I was always liking to draw. I always drew as a kid, and I was a uh, avid reader. Like I had read all the James Bond books by Ian Fleming when I was ten. Oh, wow. Yeah, that kind of thing. But at the same time, I also read all the YA stuff, too. So it was all mixed together for me. Uh, so fun stories, violence and sex were all the same thing to me at the age of 11 or whatever. So uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, and at one point, I even lived outside of the country and I was exposed to European carp comics and I loved them. Um, and that was, you know, when I was young. Um, I lived around enough to pick up different accents and then come back with them and it ended up being a neutral accent. So when I, I was a teenager back in America, um, I was cartooning in school, just trying to get my friends to laugh. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that the more setup I did to a joke, the more they laughed. And I was trying to get them to laugh in homeroom so they'd get in trouble. So I really practiced on getting the story set up. And, and next thing I knew, it was one page with notebook paper and a ballpoint pen. And by the end of the year, it was three pages with notebook paper and a ballpoint pen drawing, trying to get people to laugh. <laughs> and uh, it really helped me to figure out, uh, you know, a little bit of the basics of cartooning. Mm -hmm. And we were copying other cartoonists. We loved Mad Magazine. I loved the editorial cartoonists, loved uh, DC Comics, Marvel Comics. And uh, then when I got to be about college age, I discovered the underground comics and all those guys. Um, and then I, for a living, I was a musician for a while. And then I uh, left that and became a TV editor. And I spent about 10 years as a TV editor. Mm -hmm. And the, the job of the editor was a good training for me as a cartoonist because I would look at 20 hours of video to get a 30 minute show. So I was looking at performances repeatedly, trying to find the perfect expressions cut on exactly the right entry point and out the right exit point. Mm -hmm. And so when I got into comics later, that helped me so much to be a storyteller and a storyboarder. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I got tired of editing and I was looking for something else to do. And, then, and I remembered my love of comics. And I looked at the comic book store and the indie comic movement had begun. Mm -hmm. This was like in 92, 93. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole brat pack of popular indie cartoonists that now were popular. And there was about six, seven or eight of them. And they opened the door for all everybody else. And I was in the second wave uh, of people that came in. And I started with this book, uh, I wanted to write a big sci-fi thing, but I thought that's too ambitious for a first timer. Mm -hmm. So I just went with a simple relationship story that I had been drawing in comic strips about 
this blonde lady who was very angry uh, and then a brunette lady who was the girl next door, the one you would use trust as a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And these two unlikely people became friends and more. And from that, I, I just took off and did like 10 year long comic called Strangers in Paradise and um, kind of established myself in the industry and then went on to write other books after that. And I've been working ever since. And that's my quick general journey, how I got here. Okay. And so the first work, of course, being Strangers, that's the work that most people are familiar with. But we, I, you know, I know that there's a lot more work that you've done besides Strangers. So was there a story that inspired that? You said you'd been doing that back in like school and things like that. So tell that story of kind of what was the, what were the seeds, I guess, that sprouted to form Strangers in Paradise? If I was an archaeologist look, or a therapist going backwards, I, you know, you might think, oh, well, every popular fiction has a blonde and a brunette. You can go every movie ever made, you know, oh, so many books, so many comic series have blondes and brunettes. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker or Betty and Veronica or, I mean, I go all the way back to the first movie ever made. Anyway, I think in my case, it was when I really started drawing a lot was when I was 11. And we were living in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And I had access to different books than I'd had in Alabama where we left. And I was exposed to the Ian Fleming books and also to a, a lot of English books. There was a YA writer in World War II. Her name was Enid. Blyton. She wrote a ton of different series okay. for kids. And there were adventure books and there were boys and girls. One of the series that she did was about a girl's boarding school and you would watch, you would follow your avatar, this main character. And she started at year one and went to year, and each one was a book. Year one was a book, year two was a book, year three was a book. And there were six years and they were called forms in English school. So First form at Mallory Towers, second form at Mallory Towers. It was a series. I got hooked on it. Hmm. Okay. I read that the same year that I read James Bond. So if you put together James Bond in a girls boarding school, you have Strangers in Paradise. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's that it that's that's the two atoms that make this chemical. Yeah. Because there are a lot of espionage elements of strangers. I mean, there's a lot of the, the past stuff, you know, things like that. Your past coming to seek you out. And there's yes. moments and reveals where like, wait, I didn't know you knew how to use a gun type things. And again, I've seen bits and pieces of, of strangers. So I've never been able to sit down and go, start me out at book one and work me out throughout the whole series. But I've seen little bits and glimpses of it. And I'm just like, this is really, a this is very... It's a very complicated story about very real complicated people. Yeah, and that the the layers that you're describing are were possible because I did that series for a long time. So there was a lot of material and I had room to stretch out and get into subtext, backstory, which is not possible when you're doing quick, fast stories, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had because I had 10 years to write the story, I was able to get in there and turn it into a big novel, you know, is, is my Moby Dick, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But when you first start reading it, it looks like it's a simple story about 
one one girl with a roommate and then it just kind of opens up more and more and more and as you get deeper into it and discover the past it's more like what 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 ha- what did you do yeah and in my story whereas the difference between me and the others uh like uh some of the more popular entertainment was that in my story it was possible for somebody to actually get pushed off a building and die or somebody else we know used to be a call girl you know so there was more of that grittiness that ian fleming grittiness to it rather than uh just a lot of ya stories or just uh, a chick flick story it had more of a guy thing where like it's time for somebody to punch somebody you know and i don't i don't mean i'm not supposed to say guys things anymore um that's not that's not politically correct but i meant i there's no scenes in there where they're just shopping for food or you know i get bored and nobody ever went shopping for a wedding dress but it was possible that they drove their car through town at 140 miles an hour mm-hmm. you know? So I just kind of kept things moving, but I, I did focus on the lives of these ladies and uh, try to see the world through their eyes, what it's like to live on a planet full of predators and how they cope. Okay, okay. And, and, and I appreciate that. And something I even was complimentary of your women, because one thing uh, in the world of comics, there are a lot of artists that draw, if they drew a hundred women, they all look the same. They, they have a form and then they slink them into that form. Uh, yeah. Whereas with your art, I, I mentioned, I think it was Joseph uh, Michael Lincher and some others who, when you guys do women, one of the coolest things about your women is that they come in all shapes and sizes, just like they do in real life. And so I always found that fascinating, especially being a, being a guy trying to draw women, you know, I understand mentally that women come in all shapes and sizes, but then trying to put that down on paper can be very difficult, especially if the artists that you're studying are the artists that kind of do the, all right, here's woman number 14 of 500, and we just slide them down the list, and then we just put the different hair, we put a different set of makeup and things like that on it and, and then put a different outfit on it and then ship her out for the next book to sell. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, the each artist definitely has their own look. And so you can tell like uh, uh, a Jim Lee woman from an Adam Hughes woman from uh, a Linsner woman from mine. So there's definitely a style that is always there but yeah, you're right about the terms of like proportions and all that. When you see somebody where every woman is actually literally proportioned exactly the same, mm-hmm. and so are the men, you know, like all the men look like have the same bodybuilder physique, no matter what they do or how they live. That's just an artist who has practiced really hard to get that one look. And that's their ticket to the party. You know, I do this. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. But some people um, like the variety that is available in life and um, they work really hard to inject that into their art, uh, the variety that is available. And I I think that can be cool too. I I actually first kind of saw that in the European and the Japanese comics. They would go to a lot of trouble to show uh, tall, short, different shapes, 
and, and, and the same for the men. It was the same way for the menships. I never understood why, uh, for instance, like supervillains were just as ripped and fit as Batman and Superman. Did they all go to the same gym? They're all on the same wheat, wheat butter <laughs> program. Uh, you know, I thought a lot of villains were supposed to be losers. I would draw a lot more loser looking people than I would hero, heroic looking. Mm-hmm. Things like that, you know? So you, it depends on what you think about when you're drawing, I think. If you're just yeah. trying to draw the perfect guy every time, the perfect woman every time, that's what you get. Yeah, well, I mean, even, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because as soon as you mentioned that, I thought about the whole controversy surrounding Dr. Octopus uh, from back about maybe a few months ago where people were saying, well, Spider-Man is problematic because he's making fun of Dr. Octopus because he's, he's chubby, he's overweight. And, Spider-Man shouldn't say that. I'm like, well, first of all, didn't Spider-Man rip on every one of his villains? Yes. Like, isn't that kind of a characteristic of who Spider-Man is? Like, he's he's the wisecracking web crawler. He gets you off your game mentally because he's constantly cracking jokes the whole time. And it's not that he's not taking the situation seriously, but it's that he understands that if he's talking about you and you're concentrating on what he's saying and not what he's doing, then he's already won. Yeah, the fight. And so what I looked at, like, talking about like Dr. Octopus, for example, perfect example of a villain who's not got a buff body shape, except that he was the spectacular Spider-Man and he possessed Peter Parker at one point and all that and it's all another thing. But I always you- found him interesting in that he was a bigger dude. I mean, I love, growing up, I've always been kind of a chunky kid, so I love like characters like The Blob. I yeah. love characters like Dr. Octopus. Yeah, he was the smartest dude in the room, but he didn't look like, say, a Norman Osborn, who looked like he was literally chiseled out of rock, too. Like, he was just, you know, the you know, very prim, proper guy who was a whole lot of crazy. <laughs> he was a lot of crazy. But, you know, think about, okay, just, just thinking about Spider-Man. Dr. Octopus looked different than Craven the Hunter, looked different than the Vulture, looked different than Norman Osborn. Osborn. They all looked different from each mm-hmm. other, you know? They, so there was that variety you would find in New York. And I, that was so cool. And I don't know if you can, it's, there's, here's the trick about fiction is that like, for instance, if you put two fighters in a ring and one of them starts verbally ripping on the other one as part of his game, are you going to tell them to stop uh, criticizing the other fighter's body while they're in the ring? That's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. I mean, there's, there's a, that's what we're doing. You can't take the rules that you want people to be using to treat your kids nice and well. Yeah. You can't take them onto the battlefield or into the fighting ring, or if you're 45 stories up and fighting for your life against, you know, the gob, the green goblin. I think you get to say what you want. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I just need that dialogue where, you know, Spider-Man is slinging a pumpkin bomb away from like 25, 30 people. And he's just like, oh, you know, oh, oh, greedy, you're just being silly or whatever. And then somebody just yells out something goofy, like, you know, you're making fun of his mental health. His mental health is viable. I'm trying to save you from a bomb, lady. <laughs> Exactly. I need you not to get blown up. Stay over there. <laughs> yeah. 
leave that leave that poor green goblin guy alone you know he's, he's he has difficulties we he needs therapy and love not hugs not not so you know but i was you know i feel like this this is a conflict we have going on in life right now mm-hmm. so as a writer of a mainstream popular book this is one of your challenges for instance every night on entertainment tonight they do another piece on uh, a young lady who is a very popular singer diva and this lady is clearly having struggling she's struggling for her health they every night they do a story on her it's not right it's not fair you don't pick on people that are struggling for their mental health you don't you don't keep putting a spotlight on them you would never do that in a school why is it okay for the tv show to do it right so you kind of have that weight of responsibility as a mainstream writer at DC Comics to, okay, Spider-Man, yeah, he's in the ring. So, but we don't have normal WWWE rules here. I mean, this is gonna be read by a 12 year old and he's gonna take what he learns to school tomorrow. So, you know, you have to weigh out your responsibility. <laughs> when nobody's looking, you can call the Green Goblin the name, but if right. the 12 year olds are looking, watch your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it odd because it's like, to me, it's like when you think about the real world circumstances that you're writing in, I mean, it it can get frustrating. I can understand where people could look at it and say, okay, well, Superman's got to go save this person from, say, Lobo. And Lobo is just digging into Superman hard. He's just like, oh, you're not worth it. You know, da-da-da-da, why am I even fighting a Kryptonian? The last 10 Kryptonians I fought, I whipped them in minutes. What makes you think you're any better? It, nobody's going to come out in the middle of that and be like, excuse me, sir, I'd appreciate it greatly if you just fight the battle and not sit there and criticize the guy who's trying to save my life, please. Like, uh-huh. you know. This is, you know, it, it, it's just uh, something that we, we are, we're in a time where we're adjusting our language mm-hmm. uh, and, and for many good reasons. But for instance, like Superman, not once have I heard him cuss. And in all this time with everything he's been through, at some point, the guy was allowed a, a cuss word once in a while, but he never did it. So if you can manage to write all that without cussing, I think we can manage to write it without, you know, whatever is super offensive today, you know. Right. So uh, we, we figure it out, you know, we, we figure it out. It's trying to like, it's just trying to get everybody to behave. <laughs> Yeah, and the main thing at the end of the day, I think, is that you want to tell the stories you want to tell and to be able to tell it without the potential of feeling like anything could trigger people. Because yeah. it's like, you know, you, 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 um, goodness gracious, there was a cover of Spider Woman that came out a while back, and everybody was like, oh, that's humanly impossible for a woman to get in that I'm- position. I know exactly the cover you're talking about. And I'm going, but Spider-Man has done the craziest stuff for decades and nobody said a word. Now, I don't look at that cover and go, oh my gosh, Jessica Drew couldn't do that because she's Spider-Woman. I'm pretty sure she could. Mm-hmm. You know, well, where's her spleen? Well, where's her colon? Well, what? I'm like, why are you <laughs> concerned about all that? Like, yeah. it's a cool pose that somebody with the ability of a spider can do like I said, you, you, if you think her stuff is impossible, don't go looking at McFarlane's Spider Man stuff from the 90s because yeah. there aren't gymnasts, and there are not enough gymnasts on the planet with enough double jointedness to be able to pull off the stuff that <laughs> Spider Man was doing in the 90s. 
You know, that's the thing. You were talking about the 90s. Um, I, I kind of almost think now that everything made more than two or three years ago is going to be offensive. It's kind of got wrong. that point. You're not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong. I, I don't think anybody today with the with what we're with the standards we're all seeking to establish today, I'm not sure anybody could read or watch anything made before a couple of years ago because none of that was made to those standards. You know? Yeah. So there's something everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it, and, and it could be tough. I mean, there was a situation with Daniel Kibblesmith, I think, that just came out where he apparently made a threat toward a policeman somewhere where they made a statement and he made a threat. So then like the New Warriors book that he had written that they ended up, I guess, due to issues with what's been going on, uh, they couldn't get the individual issues out. So then they were going to trade it. They were supposed to release it this Wednesday. And then it just didn't get released. Because, of course, yeah. what the stuff he said on Twitter, I, that Marvel hasn't come out and said, like, we didn't release this because of what the writer of this book said. But it feels awfully weird that they were pushing this book to come out this Wednesday. And then, like, Tuesday, this stuff drops. And then the book just doesn't come out. Right. That, that's, that's laying low. You're just you're just trying to uh, you know what we'll just wait a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Twitter has ended several careers. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, it. You can go get in real trouble on Twitter. Yeah, and it's not hard. It's no. not hard at all. I mean, like I think what was it? Uh, you know, there was a there was a writer that went after an artist because he did a cover for a guy. And like, it was a situation where uh, I believe it was Jay Lee and Jay Lee had done this cover for a guy and then another writer went after him saying all this crazy stuff. And like that particular weekend and all this stuff broke, like Jay Lee's, I follow Jay Lee on, on Instagram and Jay Lee had just posted up this very beautiful tribute to his dog, him and his wife had, had a dog. It was just part of their family. And this dog had passed away. They had to end up going through and have it surgically put down. And so then on that same weekend, when they were going to go reminisce on the dog, he's getting like tweets and all this stuff. Are you part of a hate group? Are you part of this? It's just like, I'm just trying to bury my dog and have memories of my dog. Like mm -hmm. I'm not a part of any groups. I just, I do this thing called drawing art. I've been doing this for 20 plus years. I just want to do my job. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to get on and say, I don't do my art for a message. I just do my art because it's a job for me that yeah. I love doing. And it's just like, it makes me think like, I'm kind of, it's like, I'm kind of glad that the little kids books and things I've written and the few comic books I've done independently are outside of that spectrum. And I'm not really all over Twitter and stuff like that, because it just weirds me out because it's like if I ever start speaking about my beliefs on Twitter, somebody's going to be like, well, you can't be that in this day and age. It's 2020, you know. And yeah, you, whatever position you, you have on something, half the world disagrees. And you have to know that when you go out there onto the social platform, you know. Um, I, I think when I look back at turbulent times in history, and I think about the great creative works that have come out of these terrible times. Um, like for instance, Alice in Wonderland is a metaphor for British politics 
And we all love the book, but we can't remember anything about that era that he was writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book was ended up being of more value than whatever all those arguments in Parliament were about mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so when I'm making my book, I'm greatly influenced by my times, but I try to write a book that will reflect that in a metaphorical way and maybe still communicate in 60 years. And you don't have to know all the details about the politics of today. Yeah. Well, and I, I have a beautiful story to tell in that regard. Uh, there was a young lady that I know that uh, was having struggles with her sexuality. And so she came to me at one point, I was at a convention and uh, she knew me. I've known her since she was younger. And she came to me, she was like, do you know any books that kind of deal with just relationships between women, you know, that, uh, you know, and, and kind of that earnest look. I said, the only thing I can think of, to be honest, right now, that doesn't get preachy, but at the same time, it's real is Strangers in Paradise. It's the only book I know that does it well, because you either go, because I think there's a balance with your work that I can recommend. Because there are some works where it's not very real at all. And then the opposite is it's almost the other side is almost the gross end of it. Hmm. You know, and I didn't want to recommend anything like that to her. So I said, I'd recommend strangers. And so I think she picked up one of the, I don't know if she got the omnibus. Because I know the store at the time, they have the huge box with all yeah. of it in it. Yeah. So of course her mom looked at her like, well, you're definitely not getting that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that might be a Christmas present or two, but that's not that's not something we can get today. But I think she was able to find one of the trades to the first volume so she could start reading it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I just I was just was like, you know, you if you want to read something that speaks to the struggles of women in a relationship in any format, because I feel like it, it. and then you've got, I believe his name is David, mm-hmm. who is there as well. And, and David, to me, felt like kind of the eyes of the case. He kind of feels like the person, he's kind of coming into their world fresh. And so he really doesn't understand what's going on, what's at play. Uh, there are moments where mistakes are made. There are things that are said that are not very smart that he says a lot. And it's not so much like, oh, women smart, men dumb. It's more of David is like any human dude. When we get around the opposite sex, we're going to say things that aren't always the best thing in the world, even if it's not meant to hurt. You know, we're going to we're going to trip up women. Women get us that way. You know, that's just the reality of it. uh, It's hard to um, it's hard to be on your game all the time and say the right thing. And. I think when you get stories about relationships and three people in a room and they get excited and talking about something in a story, um, you know, somebody's going to blurt something out, you know, their first thing that came out of their heart and uh, maybe it wasn't well thought out or something. So it's fun when you can catch those moments in a story. Um, I use David. He, he goes into this very, uh, the, 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 the tension between Francine and Cachu, the two ladies, is, is I wanted to always be palpable on the, on the page. Mm-hmm. And then David comes in like Switzerland. He's very neutral. Mm-hmm. He's the only guy allowed in the room uh, for much of the book. And 
through with David as kind of our avatar. It's because of David that we get to listen to so many conversations that normally we wouldn't have been privy to. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the the book, the story, I was trying to do the opposite of what I used to do in editing. In editing TV, you cut right on the exact moment and leave at the at the peak of the moment. Mm-hmm. And in the writing, I wanted to get to the scene a little bit early and leave a little bit late because that's when all yeah. the good stuff is said. Mm-hmm. Haven't you always wanted to know what people said when you left the room? Right. And so I tried to write that way so that you could get those extra little bits. Um, and just the reason was, I just thought the more you know, the more you care. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get all the personal stuff. And uh, David helped me bring that out. And, and you know, it wasn't always a staged conversation between the two ladies, only, only talking at the peak of the moment. There were the down moments, you know, did you do the dishes? Yeah, they're over here. Why do you always put them over there? Well, because, you know, I got in that habit when I was a kid. Oh, you mean when you're a kid and you were doing this and that? See, one thing would lead to another. Mm-hmm. But by letting, instead of cutting at, you know, when I used to live in Alabama, and no, I let you start at doing the dishes. Where'd you put the dishes? Because then you feel more like you're connected to the moment. Mm-hmm. That's where your personal memory, if you had it in your memory, that may be where the memory starts. Mm-hmm. Instead of like the exact moment your grandmother said something important to you, you remember where you were sitting and what you were looking at. Look at the flowers. Isn't that nice? You know, you have this before and after stuff too. Yeah. It it's works. The, you know? Yeah. It's the, I smell chocolate chip cookies cooking in this oven. And when I smell chocolate chip cookies in the oven, what does that make me, what does that remind me of? Mm-hmm. And then you go down, mentally, you go down that road. So when you're reading your work, that is one of the things I noticed that's beautiful is that you're catching those little blips into the rabbit hole that goes. But then those blips carry on as the story goes because then there are situations and moments where those blips may come back or it's like, oh, wait a minute, she said this back here. And this is why she's acting like this now because of this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're really able to keep these very intricate threads. And again, if you think about it, what are relationships more than threads that we have between people? Exactly. You know, some threads go very long. Some threads are very short. You know, your people may only be in your life in some cases for a year. And then you walk away and you never speak to that person again. Mm-hmm. But that thread is still there because you have those memories that are associated with that person, good or bad, you know? So Yeah, you- and if you can get something in your story, like your memories of that person involve uh, something that smelled pleasant or a certain thing in, in the kitchen or whatever. And then from the, for the rest of your life, very frequently, that triggers the memory. You know, and you can do that as a writer as well. You you have something in there that becomes a little icon and then you can get a year and a half later into the story and you see the icon sitting there and you go, oh yeah, yeah, I see the connection. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when I feel like I'm doing a better job of, of representing real life rather than telling a story of, then they did this, then they did that, then they did this, then they did that, then they went there, then they did that you know, an action story where it's just bam, 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 bam. Right. And there's a, there's a place in our entertainment for stories like, you know, Independence Day, bam, 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 bam. But there's also a really a good place for the one that slows down and lets you uh, really get an image of the room first, you know, two yeah. different styles. I got the, I remember watching the train 
Train to Busan, uh, which is an incredible, I'm going to say it's an incredible, intense drama slash horror movie slash action movie slash uh, emotional roller coaster of a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I never thought that anyone could do a zombie movie like that. Because basically, at the end of the day, it's a zombie flick, if you really want to break it down <laughs> to the base level. But you get this moment at the very beginning where like the child is at a recital and she keeps looking for her dad, but her dad's not there because her dad's working. And it's like her dad, you see her dad at work and it's like, you see this moment, he's looking at his watch, but he's still at work. He hasn't left. And so more than likely the setup is he's not gonna make it in time to see a recital. And that's the thing she holds dear is that he's there, he's present. And so you get these little moments and as time goes on in the story, it's like, here's this moment to build to this one. She lashes out because he wasn't there. Okay, so she wants to go stay with her mother because her mother at least is more present in her life, whereas dad's not, because all dad does is work. And all these different things happen, all these beats happen. Well, then you introduce a train with zombies into it. (laughs) And you're thinking to yourself like, this shouldn't work, but it does. Because when it clicks for him what matters most, it's his daughter. It's not the work, it's not the job, it's none of that. All the stuff he was doing prior to that moment, wasn't gonna do anything for him. But you have to have that initial stuff in the beginning to appreciate why that change is so vital for him. And then it literally becomes, we're gonna survive. We're going to survive. I don't care how many people you see die in front of you today. We're going to survive somehow. And so it becomes that thing. That's, man, and that, that is all, that's really in a nutshell describing life. The zombies and all the problems and everything is just the crazy world around us. And no matter how long your journey is, eventually you come to the realization all that really matters is uh, the people I love and the people who love me and, and, the family and our love, you know, uh, everything else comes and goes and, and, and the, and the assault never ends, uh, from the outside world. But, uh, when you're laying on your deathbed, you're not thinking about uh, your favorite business meeting. You're thinking about the people you love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you're sick, you're, you're not concerned about how many days of work you're missing. You're concerned about getting better. You're concerned about being surrounded by people that you care about. Eventually it comes down to the human to the human life and the people that mean so much to you. And if that's at the bottom of every story, it'll work. You know, if whether there's zombies or a spaceship or, uh, you know, the British army, uh, if the point of it is surviving uh, either as a person or as a team, um, now we can relate. Yeah. Yeah, that's life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 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 man, first of all, thank you just for, being willing to dialogue like this dialogue is just beautiful to me like i i can't tell you like i almost feel like this is a master class in storytelling and i wasn't even prepared <laughs> for that but it's, uh, it's wonderful stuff it's a great to dive into mm-hmm. so uh as we continue on the story of of strangers in paradise of course you've had a lot of stuff birthed out of strangers in paradise so let's talk a little bit about some of those works that have come because you if if Strangers in Paradise is your foundation and you built everything else off of that, so. That's exactly right. 
when I finished Strangers, I had been doing it for like, a, I don't know, 11, 12 years. And I wanted to do something really different. Um, so the next story I did was Echo. It's a sci-fi story. And I have a real interest in science and atomic energy and all that. Um, so it was kind of organic for me to do that story. I mean, I really wanted to. Mm -hmm. But I was in the middle of the story and I thought, even when I started the story, I realized, you know, this is can happen at the same time frame as my Strangers in Paradise story. It's just happening in a different state. Strangers in Paradise is based out of Houston and a couple of other places, but this next one's gonna be in the middle of a state park in California, same time period. I got to the middle of the story and I realized I needed a character who did something that was, that they specialized in in Strangers in Paradise. So I brought the character in and once I did that, I realized, you know, I have such a big character base in Stranger Paradise. Um, there could be a stranger's character in every book I ever write. Mm -hmm. And it all ties together. And so that's kind of what happened. I went to the next book, Rachel Rising, a horror story. And uh, there was a couple of, a few stranger's characters in there. And then the next one was um, Motor Girl. And there's a stranger's character there and so on. And so now I've, every book I've done is all in one big Terry verse, you know? And I really, <laughs> I kind of got the idea from Robert Heinlein because he wrote a lot of books and he got about halfway through his career and realized they could all tie together if he uses his central character, Lazarus Long, as the common denominator throughout all the books. And mm -hmm. everybody's either related to him somehow or descendant or pre, pre to, you know, came before. So yeah, you know, it's like Stephen King's Dark Tower. It's just all, it all ties together eventually. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I love it. I think that's really neat because you didn't realize at the time when you were creating it that you could go, I could just tie it all together through here and there with these through lines and these people and these relationships and these moments. And so now you've got a whole thing where if, you know, you go through, like, say I had infinite funds and I was just like, I'm buying all of it. I'm going to sit down today. I'm buying everything Terry Moore has ever done. <laughs> and I go out and I, uh, and I start reading it and take the time to do so. And then I start realizing, okay, wait, this is connected to this from this. Yeah. Uh, this is connected from this to this. Oh, okay. So now I see the universe ever expanding and growing bigger. Yeah. If you go pick uh, any of the books, but you haven't read Strangers, but you go pick up any of the other books and read it, you may, I hope you enjoy the book for what it is. Right. But if you go back and read Strangers or any of the books that came before it, you're going to see somebody, their whole full story, their back, their backstory, and you go, "Whoa, that character was, I that was in the other book." And now you see the backstory, and you go, "Oh, I'm getting a little light shed on the whole aspect of this." And mm -hmm. okay, this makes more sense. And so the the more you get into it all, the more you will know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I just Again, I was just thinking about it's one thing for you to read it today, but if you want to read it next year or read it all, I want something more to be there for you on the second reading and the third reading. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when you tell somebody, okay, you can watch Infinity War and Endgame for Marvel people out there due to MCU. You can watch both of those movies and not have ever watched the other, you know, 20-something Marvel movies before it. But if you've watched those other Marvel movies, 
there are a lot of Easter eggs for those other Marvel movies that are there in those two movies to where when you see, like there's a scene in Endgame where when uh, Steve is standing there, you know, and he's got the hammer and I'm not going to give a spoiler warning because we're talking about Endgame. If you haven't seen it by now, I'm spoiling it anyway. Uh, and, you know, you've got this moment, he's holding, he's holding everything he's got left. Thanos is on the other side. Thanos' whole army is there. And you're just, it's literally cap against the world. And then all of a sudden he hears Steve on your left. And it's like, that's a callback to Winter Soldier. <laughs> when he's running around and just lapping Falcon and he says the Falcon on your left as he's lapping him, you know? <laughs> and then you see all these other people, you see Howard the Duck in there for a brief second. Hey. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy 1. <laughs> and so you start making these crazy connections and different things like that. Or even one of my favorites that a lot of people didn't catch, when Black Panther looks at Clint Barton and says, Clint, hand, hand it to me. Civil War, Clint says to Black Panther, my, my name is Clint. Black Panther's response is, I don't care. And they proceed to continue fighting. And so the fact that he calls him by name goes, you know what? I care now. <laughs> uh, see, you're picking up on all the stuff the writer thought. That is so cool. And so that's the thing with what you're doing is you're setting up that same thing to where, okay, like you said, okay, if I go out and read Rachel Rising, but not have really read Strangers, I'm going to enjoy that for what it is. But yeah, getting back and going back and looking at this stuff, it's like, oh, wait a minute, there's this, there's this, there's this. There's this, yeah. because that's, I, somebody told me one day, they said, you know, I don't understand how you can break down stuff like you do, because you'll see something and you'll see these different strings that just go out from on it. And they said, you're not quite like the meme guy from the, that, that sits down like Charlie Day's the little meme where he's got thumbtacks and strings all over it. <laughs> but he says, you, they said, you just see so much in something. It's like I was watching The Mandalorian, the new episode of Mandalorian today because they dropped the first episode of season two. And I'm like, man, this feels like Empire Strikes Back. This feels so much like the, the spirit of it. It feels like, okay, I was like, are we going back to Tatooine? Sure enough, two seconds later, the guy was like, well, the guy you're looking for is a Tatooine. We really are going back. <laughs> they really put that uh, in their brain when they started. You know, they really want to make it for you. A, 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 a person like you who's going to see it, they want you to be able to make the connection and appreciate it. And it's there for you. As opposed to like, oh, we're just, you know, we're going to stand out here in left field and just make things up. Mm -hmm. No, it's there. It's, it's grounded. And so it sounds You know, like you're thinking, you're looking at the story the same way that physicists look at things, you know, or scientists, you know, they, you have a big chalkboard up there and you spend a lot of time looking at one section and then you look at the other one, you start seeing the connections and that's, that's that's when things get fun. Mm -hmm. Because then it's, it's piecing it all together to make that new thing that you didn't realize you needed until you saw it. Yeah, you thought you had 12 pieces of something and then you put them together and you realize, oh my God, it's an apple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's the kid that was building Millennium Falcons with regular bricks of Legos before they ever made the set of Millennium Falcons. <laughs> it's that kid who yes. can see the Millennium Falcon in something regular to where eventually 
people were like, we got to do billion in Falcons because we could sell this because kids are already making it. You guys <laughs> won't make an official thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and they usually make it with more bricks than you would have made it with. Had you, <laughs> in special you know, bricks, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, this is the thing for the wheel so it turns the engine open when you go to the engine room. And this is where you drop a little Lego Han. <laughs> hey, I heard a Lego thing today um, that you can cut Tic Tacs in half and get the little bumpers and things like that you need. Hmm. I did not know that. That's Cutting Tic Tacs in half, yeah. Huh. That's... And little stands and feeties and mm -hmm. bumpers and domes and yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you just have to make sure not to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, no harm, no foul. <laughs> right, definitely so. So you've made these other works. Uh, now I'm not going to ask you if you have a favorite. First of all, because I'm pretty sure Strangers is probably your favorite. But yeah, that's a Sophie's choice. I, I can't do that. <laughs> right. Right, because you made so much stuff. So can I ask favorite character, perhaps, that you've created? Yeah, uh, you know what? I try to have the mentality that's whoever I'm having to draw at the moment. So if even if I'm drawing a stinker of a character, when I'm drawing them in that moment, I try to think about their whole world. Um, and I'm all about them, uh, good or bad. I, right now, I got those books behind me and then I finished a brand new thing. And now I'm about to start another one for 2021. And it, um, it's a new series called Serial. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna feature uh, this little girl who was in Rachel Rising uh, and her name is Zoe. So it's about her. Okay. And I guess it's not much of a secret. You're gonna be surprised if you don't know the book, Rachel Rising, but in Rachel Rising, it's a scary town and instead of getting the usual Halloween movie where the most dangerous person in town is the big scary dude who lives out on the fringe of town. Mm -hmm. In this story, I wanted to go against typecast and the 10 year old girl is the most dangerous person in town. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Zoe is a serial killer. And I spent a lot of pages explaining how that's even possible. <laughs> Uh, that's not right, <laughs> but I, I figured it out. And uh, so she actually became, she has, still has a bit of a childish humor and uh, irreverence to her that kind of makes her a more uh, fun character to be around. She's not super dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, she got so popular with my reader base that I eventually thought, well, you know, I'm going to do a whole series with her now. Right. That's pretty, that's interesting. I mean, just the idea of a 10 year old serial killer, like just that, that, that almost, I don't know that it writes itself, but it definitely piques interest. I got the idea from, um, uh, like I was thinking about Broadway plays and how you cast the play and now you've got all your actors on stage lined up with their script in their hand and you're the director and you're looking at them. And so you've got the woman next door to look like it and the young husband and the young wife and the grandmother. You've, and you've cast them all to look just like what we always think. And then I had this idea, wouldn't it be great to have them all pass their script one actor to the right, to the left. Oh. Now right. read your part, now read your part. And now the young 30 year old dude is the grandmother and everything opposite you can think of 
Well, they're still saying the same words, but I'm really listening more now because it's coming out of the wrong mouth. <laughs> and I had that whole opinion about when I went into Rachel Rising. I thought, you know, I'm so tired of that serial killer always looking the same way. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a joke now, it's a trope. So how can I freshen this up? And I thought about that, the little girl and how to do it. And, um, I try to do that once in a while in each book, you know, okay. miscast something on purpose. Yeah, so she was in Rachel Rising as a character and then mm -hmm. now she's getting her own series, so. Yeah, she earned it. Um, you know, you sometimes you write a character like Kachu or Zoe and they're just such a strong character that every time they walk in the room, they take over the scene. And you hear writers describe that and you think, oh, you're just making that up. But no, there's something to it. There's even in a fictional character that you're writing the dialogue, somehow their dynamic personality, they get the best lines. They're the one who makes the fastest decision. They kind of take over the conversation and lead the scene. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's, she did that for me. So I thought Kachu was my one bolt of lightning in my whole career, but I ended up with two bolts of lightning, I think. And uh, so she, yeah, she gets the series. Yeah. And that's really neat too, you know, now, now just to make sure again, because like I said, I haven't read as much of the work as I would like to. Uh, you've got Kachu, who is more of the artsy type, if I'm not mistaken, correct? She's the art student. She has an art side to her, yeah. And okay. uh, that stays throughout the story. But she's basically a teenage runaway and she has a terrible teenage history of abuse and all that that comes out in the story. Mm -hmm. And her friend Francine helps her through that and they build a bond of loyalty of friendship uh, to help get through that. And it's part of the first half of the Strangers in Paradise story. If you look at the series, you think that Francine would be the stronger of the two, but in the stuff that I have read, Kachu has her own strength. You know, that's the thing, like it's not a, it would be real easy, I would think, to write that as, okay, well, Francine's kind of the strong one and Kachu is the, is, is the developing, some might call the weaker of the two. And so it's almost that, not even a symbiotic relationship, it would be more of a parasitic relationship where she's drawing. But when you look at these two ladies, it seems like they really need each other. Like yeah. they, their relationship really, because there are things that, and Kachu brings to the relationship that to me it seems like soften Francine a bit but then at the same time she gains a bit of Francine's hard edge so they both become better as they're around each other and that is so common in fictional duos uh, that's a lot of times maybe in real life as well um, but when you think about like one of the most stark examples I can think of is like Nero Wolf, the detective, and his assistant, Archie. Um, they're two different extremes of men, and you put them together and you make one complete whole man. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it is with Francine and Cachu. You meet them, and they're two polar opposites. They're not balanced in life. They're not balanced human beings. Um, so the two of them, uh, even though there's a lot of sparks in the beginning, they kind of quickly form, begin forming a whole. And they both find the other side of themselves that they need when they come out on the other side. They're more well-rounded people, both of them. Uh, but they're both greatly flawed and one-sided when you first meet them. And that's kind of part of the, the journey that you take with them is how that happens. And I think it happens 
to all of us that have a best friend or a life mate or something, you know, there's, there's something to that dynamic, you know, it's always like yin yang, positive, negative, you know, that happens a lot. Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I mean, they're, they're, one guy will never do an adventure on his own. The other guy can't stop and you put them together and you've got one regular balanced guy that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So who are some, because you've talked a lot about like different comics and things like that you were exposed to as you're younger that kind of influenced it and even the writing. So other than Ian Fleming, who would be some writers that have encouraged you and inspired you as you have gone on this interesting journey? I read uh, tons and tons and tons, uh, but I don't remember any of it ever moving me uh, until I read, started reading science fiction uh, when I was about, I read my first science fiction book when I was about 11 or so, and it was uh, Moons of Harsh Mistress or something from Heinlein. And I loved all the cleverness of Heinlein and the depth and the layers. Uh, but nothing moved me emotionally until I discovered Roger Zelazny. And Roger Zelazny wrote, I, th uh, I think he wrote a story, I think he's the author of a story called A Door Into Summer, that the cat was in the wintertime and the cat was always still looking for the door in the summer and he would make the owner try every door in the house looking for the door that led to summer and not snow. Um, yeah. And then it became a, it was a story about the guy, of course, but the cat was the metaphor. Um, that kind of introduced me to Roger Zelazny. And then he wrote another one about a guy who was uh, stationed uh, on, a moon, on a working moon base or something and had fell in love and then had to leave uh, in, a, in a bad way. And uh, the closing scene, his closing two paragraphs, really, really hit me like a punch in the gut. Mm -hmm. And he didn't do it with a lot of adjectives or flowery prose. It wasn't F. Scott Fitzgerald writing beautiful English. Mm -hmm. It was more like a, a soldier giving a report. And in these the few blunt sentences, it had so much impact. And he described the emotion without any uh, sympathetic words, but the emotion was communicated. And it, it, I spent years wondering how he did that. <laughs> yeah. It was the reason I began to, to move from just a cartoonist trying to make people laugh to somebody who wanted to write something that would make people, move people's heart. Right. And uh, so Roger Slazny, the first guy that punched me in the gut. And then, uh, um, Harlan Ellison wrote a short story called The Death Bird that I read a long time ago. And The Death Bird was an entire short story written in that style. Mm -hmm. Blunt, punchy sentences that communicated hugely complicated things that was left to you to understand. You know? And I thought, oh my God, this is a whole other level of writing that I'd never found in fiction. You don't find it in historical fiction. You don't find it in biographies or any of that. Uh, it's only in sci-fi where there's, they use an, an economy of words. I don't know if it was because they have a history of coming from magazine articles where there was a word limit or short story forms. I don't know what it was, but my God, it was just amazing. So that's, that's what started my path is like, I wanna do that. I wanna be able to do that. Uh, I don't want to write 
uh, a long run on sentence like a novelist from the 50s. I want to write these punchy short sci-fi sentences that mean a lot. You know, that had a lot to do with, you know, me still trying to reach for that, you know, still trying to understand the talent of those guys, you know. Um, Kurt Vonnegut was another one who wrote the same way. So, yeah, the sci-fi guys from the 60s and 70s. Okay. They're my heroes. Okay. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, I want to also talk a little bit about how you created the world of Abstract Studios, because I know you you eventually started producing your own stuff and creating a... And I, I can't imagine the amount of capital that it takes to say, I'm just going to do my own thing. Like, I don't know that the big two or the big three would ever say, hey, come work for us. But I'm going to I'm going to do me. I'm going to sit down and create the world I want to create. And if they want to come and say something later, they can. I don't have a problem working with them. But I've got stories to tell. And I've got this one thing called life. I've got this one breath, this one moment. I'm going to tell the stories that are in me to tell. That's exactly right. You nailed it. Um, that that describes it. The The way it worked out was uh, in, when I was editing TV for 10 years or whatever, um, it's always created by committee. There was always a room full of people making every decision. And I wanted to make my own stories and not have to get talk a lot of people into it. So... I thought self-publishing would be good. I did submit my first issue of Stranger in Paradise to every publisher. They all turned me down except one small publisher here in Texas who did the first miniseries. And that's why there's a miniseries of Strangers in Paradise from another company. But um, while I was making that, I talked to the self-publishers and they talked me into it and walked me through the process. And I was able to start my own company and start publishing myself. Um, in much of the same way, it was much like when ebooks first hit mm -hmm. and everybody was trying to figure out how to do ebooks and be an independent author and how to find your readers and things like that. And most people had small success, but a few people, well, about once a year, somebody would have, would make a million dollars off their ebook and, uh, we'd all hear about it and they would inspire us, you know? So that's how it was back then with print. Um, okay. And uh, my rule of thumb was um, there was a short period of my life where my dad was a director and he decided to get a race car and I could drive it sometimes. And so there were about, for three years, I got to drive a race car. Um, and the rule of thumb in racing is never spend your own money. <laughs> so when I got to comics, I used the same rule. I couldn't afford it. I was just a working guy trying to pay my mortgage. And um, editors don't make that much. And that's what I was living on. So the comic had to pay for itself. I never went to the bank and got a signature note or a loan. It was the reason I was able to even try it was because what you could do was, unlike the book industry, in comics, you had distributors who would, um, they would take your solicitation. I'm going to make this book and I'm gonna put it out in March. Uh, they put a catalog out in January and take all the orders for the March book. Then they send you the orders. So I know before I even go to the printer, I have this many orders, say 3000 orders. Well, uh, if I sell 1000, if I sell 3000 books, I can print 5000 books. So I would, I would print to what the orders would pay for and then 
a little bit left over, and then I would take those to shows and sell them at retail. Mm -hmm. So between the order catalog, paying for my print run, and then the overages, taking them to the shows, there's your living. And if it's too, if the, all that zeroes out, then, you know, you can't go very far. But if you never get up on the, on the top side of that and you've got a few extra books and the orders were a little bit better than your print run cost, mm -hmm. you can keep going. And okay. that was my situation. And that's why you saw so many self-publishers self or indie guys, they're always promoting because they're just trying to get ahead of their bills, you know, Yeah. to make the next one. I need to sell this these books. And there's nobody else talking about it. You have to go out there and tell the world, you know, you have to get on your soapbox and tell the world about it. So you wear two hats. First off, you have to have the ability to make the book. And then your second hat is you got to let the world know about it. Mm -hmm. That's it. That was my job. Yeah. Okay. And so now with a lot of the stuff that you've done, you know, with you having a studio producing your own stuff, have you ever had other people work under you? Or is that something you don't feel like you want to do with your studio? I, I don't want to do it because uh, I've always been on deadline with my next book. And so the, I'm, I'm busy. I'm always drawing. Mm -hmm. So it would be down to my wife. And then I keep her busy doing my stuff. So if she took on another book, when I've seen other self-publishers take on other books, second book or third book, it's never worked out. Um, the margins are so tight that there's just no, if you take on a publisher, the publisher has to take a split of a tiny margin already. So now you're just like splitting one candy bar and nobody's happy, you know? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like we get a case of candy and split it. It's like you get one candy bar and I just took 60% of it. Now you're mad, <laughs> which was the reason I never went into regular publishing in the beginning was because, you know, the most you could get was what, 8% off of the book deal. And when you do the math, you have to have a bestseller to keep going. Otherwise you got one book in you and you, then you have to go back to your job. Right. So, and I wanted a career. and. I saw all these old cartoonists, all these old silver haired guys who had been drawing cartoons for 50 years. And I thought I would love to do that, you know, uh, just be one of those guys with a quiet life drawing. Um, so comics had a, a lot of attraction from different angles for me. Mm -hmm. I could do the wild, weird stories and draw and have a quiet life. And, you know, that's good. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that at all. Hey guys. You ever needed skills for different things? You ever thought, I want to learn how to crochet. I want to learn how to do needlepoint. I want to learn how to write a script for this awesome idea I had. You can go to Skillshare and learn these and other things, even things such as physics or finger painting. Any skill that you want to learn, they've got a teacher for it on Skillshare. In the link below in the description of this episode, you have an opportunity to take advantage of two free weeks of Skillshare Premium, absolutely free. You sign up for it, you decide you don't want to stay with it, fully well, understand. But I greatly hope you'll enjoy it. And I hope that you'll take the time to do that. Just by clicking that link and signing up, you will help sponsor this podcast. You will be helping us in that regard. So I thank you for that. And I thank Skillshare for sponsoring this particular podcast, Conversations About Dot Dot Dot. I hope you enjoy it. And let's get back to the show. So I was going to ask another question as a follow-up as well. Now we, we talked a little bit about some art. What are some art, who are some artists out of those, out of those days that inspired you as you do your work? Um, 
I really liked Kurt Swan when I was reading as a kid. Uh, his characters all look so wonderful. Uh, his characters were not ugly. They were wonderful looking. His Superman was terrific. His Superboy was terrific and all that. Uh, as, a pro, as opposed to say Frank Boring, who also drew Superman for a while, but he drew him with, he looked more, I don't know, he, he didn't look as good and, and I didn't care for it. So the art was important to me. And mm -hmm. I, that's when I knew that the art was important to me. I liked Steve Ditko in his early days with Spider-Man. Uh, and then when I lived overseas, I fell in love with Hergé uh, and Tintin. He's the guy who drew all the Tintins because it was super clean. And that was my introduction to the European style, mm -hmm. the French style. I like that. Um, so I, I grew up liking the French style. And then I, the underground cartoonists of America introduced me to the irreverent styles, the heavy inking and all that, like Robert Crumb or uh, Roberta Gregory or um, Dennis Kitchen. He was a guy that did that too. Then later on, I really got into the manga stuff through mm -hmm. like Rumiko and uh, Ikigami and all that. There's a totally different art style that I, I really appreciated. Um, today, the artists that I tend to admire are the ones who are in it for life. These guys can't do anything else because they're so devoted to their art. They love it. And you can tell, you know, it's like they're not just phoning it in. They really love it. Right. Uh, There's be guys like... Um, uh, Adam Hughes. Um, um, well, you mentioned, you know, um, Jay Lee. Jay Lee's a wonderful art style. But, um, you know, there's just a lot of working artists today that Amanda uh, Connor is a terrific artist with a wonderful, irreverent style. Mm -hmm. uh, she's also extremely funny. And that means something to me. Like if you're at a convention and you see a bunch of people standing around laughing and you look over their shoulder and they're looking at a really well-drawn sketch of Superman on the toilet. That's probably an Amanda Connor drawing. <laughs> <laughs> a little sketch, con sketch she did, you know? I mean, she's just yeah. really, you know? Mm -hmm. I was lucky to get to work with her a couple of times, so. Mm -hmm. I got the chance to see her on a, you know, sci-fi does a little thing where they'll do the different artist spotlights. And so she did a Harley Quinn picture. And she was just like, well, normally, and she's talking about at one point how normally when she does Harley, there's certain things she'll do with the face or there's certain things she'll do with the hair. But she was like, today I'm going to do something a little bit different with the hair. I'm going to do this instead of this. Isn't that great? So, yeah. And I thought that was unique in that she had that flair to be able to say, like, look, I'm going to take this character that you love and I'm going to change something up a little bit about it. Yeah. You know. Which is when you get the good new stuff. I mean, you got to let artists do that. I mean, um, the first time I really liked Harley, well, I don't know if that's my introduction. My introduction to Harley Quinn came through Bruce Timm and Mad Love, mm -hmm. uh, that story. Um, so yeah, I, then uh, Amanda came up with her version. And you know what, it's in the world of cartooning, there's a, there's a basic rule of thumb. It, it, like if you're a jazz musician, what you're striving for is your own voice. People can recognize you in a few notes because that's your voice and it's very distinctive. In the world of cartooning, it's the same way. How do you draw a dog? You know, if you look at all the really popular cartoonists, they each draw a dog differently. There's the Peanuts dog, there's the Mutt's dog, there's Crypto has a different realistic look. How do you draw a dog? You know, and that's how it is for cartoonists. How do you draw a woman? You can tell a Witchblade from a Jim Lee from an Adam Hughes from mm -hmm. my girl, you know, from a Frank Cho, 
Um, so yeah, it's getting that style is a big deal. Amanda has a big style and, and her bringing out a new Harlequin is a way of leaving, that's her mark on the brand, you know, you're leaving mm -hmm. it. Like if you go write for a big book at DC, you want to invent a new character that will always be there after you're gone. That's right. how you leave your mark. Mm -hmm. yeah. Same thing with an artist. Artists, you hope to do that as well. Yeah, definitely. I see your hat and I noticed the goon. Yeah, uh, from, I didn't uh, even mention him, yeah. Yeah, from uh, Eric Powell. Yeah, I got to meet him at a convention a few years ago. He came in like it, it was one of those things where like I was just I was just a little guy in a little artist alley doing my little children's books and things like that. And then here walks Eric Powell, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's Eric Powell! He did the Goon." And one of my favorite series of that series is when they did the crossover between the Goon and Death Clock. And so I was like. Is, is there a way I can find this book? He said, well, technically it's out of print because Dark Horse did it, but then Dark Horse lost the license to do this stuff for Death, Death Clock. So like, it's kind of became a weird thing where like, if you can find it, you're going to pay through the nose for it. You know, unfortunately, but he says, yeah, he says, it's out there. It's in one trade. <laughs> it's in like one trade paperback for him at the end. And like, oh, okay. But then we went out to all eat together that evening. So then I'm just picking his brain, like, you know, I want to eventually be doing comics myself one of these days. You know, what things can you advise? He was like, well, draw a lot. Yeah. And then when you get tired of drawing and you don't think you could draw anymore, go back to number one and draw a lot. Yeah. You're gonna make a lot of mistakes in the process. You're gonna you're gonna scan things in and think it's great. You're gonna go and print them off. It's gonna look like mud. Yeah. He said, that's okay. He said, and here's the other thing I can tell you, if you start it, finish it. Yeah. Because I'd rather see one guy's finished work and know that he can finish up that he or she can finish it than to see 25 projects that you started and never finished. Yeah, yeah. That's great, solid advice. You know. um, that, you know, uh, that drawing the 10,000 hour thing, you do best what you do most. And you see guys who are in the zone and it's just all looks like it's second nature. Mm -hmm. And they, they went through that 10,000 hour thing to get there. And the 10,000 hour thing is just a, a, an easy cliche way of saying something, which means, you know, you just go to the mountaintop and live there for years, focusing on it and it, it, you will become connected to it and you will find your place. You keep drawing somebody else's hand long enough, eventually it will look like your hand, you know? And so when I'm talking to beginning artists, new artists, I tell them to even trace stuff just because you're at least you're teaching your hand to go in a different direction than you've been going for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever it takes to to go through everything, you know, um, you, you, you draw all the bad stuff, get it out of your system. If you're a songwriter, you your first hundred songs sound like something else you've heard before. Do it. Get it out of your system. You got to do it. And, and then that 101st song you wrote, you write, I've never heard that before. Boom, now you're in. Mm -hmm. So you did all that to get here, you know? The same thing yeah. with art, anything creative, you know? Yeah. I just recently got a hand, my hand on a, a comic book script template because I was like, I've never written a comic book script before. Mm -hmm. I can write you a 20 page turn paper mm -hmm. and I can try to get it, make sure it's in the same MLA style and all that jazz that I did in college, but. I've never written a comic book script. So it's like, how do you write it? What's the base side? What do you do? Because 
I want to eventually be able to write a script out for the book I want to do. So that way I have more of a concrete thing of, okay, now I've typed out what I want to do. Now I've got to draw what I typed out. Yeah. And I, I did that in, uh, for, I've experimented with all that. Like, should I work from a full script? And I've written many full scripts for myself. And I certainly had to when I worked for other people, of course, but even for myself. And, I, and, and then I modified what I needed over time. Well, I don't always need that kind of description. I just need this, this, this. And yeah, you find, your, you find, you find what works for you. Mm -hmm. I tend to be the guy that draws a lot of stuff out and then scripts out my writing like, okay, here, this is what they would say. Here's what this is what they would say. But I respond to it more based on what I drew, not based on what, I have an idea in my head of the story mm -hmm. I want to tell. But then how they get there is something I tend to do more. And what I, the problem I run into is that sometimes as I'm doing that, okay, well, if I haven't drawn four steps ahead, what's the next move? Mm -hmm. You know, whereas if I'm scripting stuff out, at least I know, okay, I, you're going here. This is the next drawing. This is what you're going. This is what you're doing. Uh, what I tended to do is I, I, eventually I got to the point where I would just make an outline. So, and maybe my book has four major scenes and I just start dive into scene one. And I know I have three more scenes and here's what happens generally. And then I, I, I draw the scene and I'm writing the dialogue as I draw. Um, and then if I finish the scene and I wanna change the dialogue, I go back and, and do my second edit at the dialogue while it's actually on the page. It, what you're describing is called the Marvel method and Stan Lee would make an outline and then hand that to Kirby and Kirby would draw the issue and then give it back to Stan and Stan would pump in the dialogue and get it punchy where it really fitted exactly what Jack had drawn, the influence innuendos. And uh, so the guys called it the Marvel method. When I started uh, in comics, it was still very prevalent. Um, uh, I actually did some work for Image and they said, um, you know, just we're gonna treat your first, give us a script and then they just treat it out like an outline. They send it down to Diodato Studios and they drew something based on my script, but it wasn't my script. They gave me back the pages of art and said, okay, now revise your script and fit it to the art that we have received from them. And that was my oh, experience. Wow. That was called Lady Supreme. <laughs> and that was a challenge. And it's not my best work because it wasn't really my story. It was kind yeah. of like working in a different way. I kind of, it's kind of like I went to go play, play a game with those guys and that was their rules, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's how the day turned out. Yeah. But it's an go, unusual experience. Mm -hmm. You went to go play kickball, but they were like, oh, by the way, we do it differently. We all yeah. turn around, we turn our backs to the baseline field and we back kick the ball. Yeah. And then you have to catch it, but you have to turn your back toward the ball wherever it's going as you're trying to chase the ball. <laughs> And, and you're like backwards the whole time trying to catch a ball that's going. And out. I was thinking, really? You guys do this every day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you? No. That worked a little different. All right. But yeah, you know, just uh, different strokes. So uh, it all kind of, you know, however, whatever it takes, whatever makes you come up with the best comic book you can make, mm. it's, that'll work. Okay. All right. Well, Mr. Moore, it has been an honor uh, to get a chance to interview you. I appreciate the time. And just the things I've been able to learn. This is one of those episodes. I'm going to probably listen to it a whole bunch myself <laughs> just to be like, okay, yeah, he said this, but I was talking to him. I didn't really, I didn't really hear that the first, 
24 times. Let me go back and listen to that again because that's uh, a lot thanks. Of great stuff you put in there. I appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Will. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I love talking about comics. So thanks for that. Not a problem at all, sir. So tell the people before we go, tell the people where they can find the things you do because we want them to be able to go out and buy the stuff. We know you 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 talked about cereal and you're gonna be doing that series. So tell us how that's gonna go, if that's gonna be something that's gonna be listed on your website or things like that. Just, just... Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, I want to be easy to find. So all my social media and my everything is Terry Moore art. I couldn't just use my name. I had to put art on there mm -hmm. to get it. And uh, so if you go to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's Terry Moore art will get you there. And then I think Terry Moore art will actually also get you to my website, which has a store on it. Um, but the website is actually called our company name, abstractstudiocomics.com, abstractstudiocomics.com. Um, I named it abstract just because it was an A and would be at the first of that catalog that you order comics from, <laughs> as opposed to Xenotope. <laughs> yeah. So um, abstractstudiocomics.com is my website and it has a store on there. You can get everything I've done. Okay. Yeah. Or you can listen listen to Will's show and uh, get all the links, hot links from there. Yeah, I'll make sure to put them in the uh, description. That's a certain. And then, uh, but I'll also be going on there because at some point I'm going to slowly start building my Strangers in Paradise collection so that I can actually read the full stories. Because even just with you talking about it, it just piqued my interest that much more. Because I've always been a fan of it, even though I didn't get a chance to really ingest it all. You know, I've always known it's out there. It's just like every so often, back in the day when there were Wizard magazines, you know, yeah, I yeah. myself a bit. You know, you always have these little blurbs and things like that about it and different things like that. I was just like, man, I wish I could just sit down and read that whole thing, you know, because it's just, it's just such a story. I and wish you could too. I want you to. This is where I heard a lot about from readers about libraries that came in handy. The libraries uh, carry it. So you can go there. So, it's, you know, it's a huge book, a lot of books. Um, so sometimes if there's a library, good library nearby, they may have these big books that I wrote. Okay. There's a lot of them. Yeah, and I'll definitely check ours. I know our library hasn't really opened since March. Oh. Just due to the small size and not being able to limit the amount of people in it. I didn't even think about that. It's okay, so, then you're just gonna have to go rip it off on torrents online. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to do that. I'm Thank you. People that I prefer, like I said, to support those who create because I believe in the idea of reciprocity. And Thank if you. you support people, they tend to remember that when you're the guy that's creating the thing. And it's like, oh yeah, I remember that dude bought X, Y, or Z for me. Let me go support that thing that he's doing, you know, because yeah. or she is doing. And so, but but it's not even just that. It's that I believe in the work you're doing. Thank you. And so that's Thank why you. when I was like, you were on Instagram, I was just like, I'm going to ask. He may not answer me and that's fine if he doesn't, but I'm going to ask because you will miss 100% of the shots you don't take. But if you take the shot and you get it, hey. That's that's the philosophy of Takumo Sato, who's an uh, IndyCar driver. And he says, no chance, no glory. And, you know, if you don't take the chance, you don't get the glory. So, uh, yeah, you have to take the shot. And thank you for the support. Uh, I do feel like 
in, in, in the book world, it's just, we're one community that really uh, tends to keep out, keep an eye on each other and support each other. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a wonderful, positive thing. I've, I've enjoyed all my time in the comic book industry and um, it, everybody's here because they want to be. And that just creates such a great vibe, you know? Yeah. So it's very positive. Nothing wrong with that at all. Well, Mr. Moore, thank you so much for rocking with me on this uh, interview. I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, Will. And um, listen, guys, above all else, uh, first of all, go support, go to Abstract Studios, go find Terry Moore, if you, uh, Terry Moore Art, uh, on the different social media things. Let him know you heard about him on conversations about dot, dot, dot. Just let him know you appreciate him because I'm sure he'll love to get that feedback. But also go support him on Abstract Studios. Go pick up the work because there's enough of it. There's, it, I don't know if there's enough time to read it all, but there's a lot there. It's a meaty thing. It sounds like a really meaty world to get into, but it's a good world to be a part of. So I thank you guys so much for rocking with me on, on this episode of Conversations About Dot, Dot, Dot. I greatly appreciate it. Above all else, guys, do me one very important favor. Be blessed to be a blessing to somebody, guys. Take care. This episode is powered by Poddex.